Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 108. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and there are one or two interesting bits of trivia on the number 108. It's a sacred number in Buddhism and Hinduism, and it's also the number of stitches on a baseball. And no, I didn't count them. And there are also 108 lines in Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, and I didn't count those either. And of course, none of this has anything to do with the podcast, but regular listeners have probably got used to this by now. Before I continue about nothing in particular, I'll let you know who is on the show this week. It's a little shorter than usual this week, which was a bit of a dilemma. I could have gone with four interviews and used them all up, but then I always like to have a bit of insurance for the next one, just in case. So I held one over and we're going with three this week. So this time we chatted with Peter McGuinness, president of Chobani, Thomas Grotkier, principal at Novo Holdings, and Professor Carlo Carbonaro from the University of Cagliari on the beautiful Italian island of Sicily. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. As you may know, I put this together on a Wednesday morning, and I was wondering why I wasn't getting many emails today until I realised some countries have a day off today, for Remembrance Day or Veterans Day. We have a weather warning of rain on today, which is always a bit odd. It's a bit like saying there's a heat warning in Death Valley. So it's been pretty uneventful, other than it looks like the US election might be over. Or it might not. And there might be a vaccine for COVID-19, which would be the best news in what's been a pretty awful year. So many lives lost with COVID and so many well-loved celebrities we've lost this year as well, more than I can ever remember in a single year. So let's hope the vaccine works and can be produced in huge quantities and that other companies develop some as well so that we can get back to a kind of normal. There are various lockdowns taking place in the UK at the moment. England's on lockdown 2.0, as some are calling it. Here in Scotland, we have five tiers and we're currently tier three, which is better than tier four, but not as good as tier two. Hopefully some of you were able to tune in to our webinar last week. And even if you didn't, you can still register and listen to it. You just can't ask any questions. If you did tune in, thank you very much. We appreciate it. So let's move on to some of this week's news, in case you may have missed any of it. Food Union boosted its delivery services in Denmark and Norway, and is planning e-commerce expansion. Stora Enso and Tetra Pak are exploring a recycling line in Central and Eastern Europe for used beverage cartons. And speaking of recycling, the beverage carton recycling rate in the EU has hit 51%, which is definitely an improvement, although 100% would be even better. Techniplex has come up with sniff-seal technology that enables scent to be put on products through an induction-sealed closure liner. And you can even smell the product through a mask. Of course, if you don't have to open the packaging to smell it, it reduces waste and it's tamper-proof. In New Zealand, Ketone Dairy signed a milk powder deal with foodstuffs. And also in New Zealand, Westland has a new CEO. Kerry acquired a Canadian probiotic company, Lactily Ingredients has developed an instant whey protein range with sunflower lecithin. And the Indian Ice Cream Manufacturers Association has a new managing committee. Maxim Foods published its global dairy commodity update for November. GEA is selling its barn equipment and milk cooling technology businesses. 
and Arla Foods Ingredients launched an organic solution for cooking stable cheese. That's cheese that's stable when you cook it, not cheese made in a stable. You just can't do hyphens on a podcast. Anyway, you can read all of those in detail and more at dairyreporter.com. Which brings us to this week's interviews. First this week, I was pretty impressed when a press release came through about U.S. yogurt company Chobani increasing its starting wage to $15 an hour, on top of all of the other good things it's been doing for its employees, and I thought it was definitely something worth highlighting. So to tell us more about it is Chobani President Peter McGuinness. Times have been tough, and what you're doing is giving your employees hope and help at this difficult time yeah i mean i think let's back it up third week of march got the team together and we said we're going to focus this company on first and foremost keeping everyone safe and supported right and at that time you know that meant wearing a mask in the plants no ands ifs or buts about it right that was long before cdc That was long before Surgeon General. That was long before Dr. Fauci and everyone said wearing a mask is a good thing, right? So we were way ahead of that. We did temperature checks third week of March, way ahead of, you know, the government and way ahead of much of society and most of companies. And then a very, very detailed health screener and a policy around if you just don't feel well, you stay home. And that could mean many, many things, right? And that has led to high absenteeism because we're conservative, because we want to keep everybody safe. A cynic or a critic of Chobani or the policies I put in place would say, oh, you know, that could lead to abuse. People could say they're sick. It could. But I give people the benefit of the doubt and I give Chobani people really the benefit of the doubt. I don't think they're abusing the system at all. Um, And we follow up with everyone to see how they're feeling. Very high connectivity. We wanted the plants to be the safest place our employees could go, safer than many other things they were doing, right? Safer than groceries, everything. Wanted to be the safest place. So distancing, mandatory mask, very detailed health screener that you have to read in full and comply with each and every day. Multiple temperature checks throughout the day. Mandatory social distancing. So we had reconfigured things to make that happen. And... You know, we were cleaning all common surfaces every three hours in both plants. And people were safe, and importantly, they felt very safe. And I think that's the most important thing you can do as an employer. Now, people could say, well, that's a little over the top, Peter. When people feel safe, they're productive, right? I mean, so many people had walkouts. So many people had union walkouts. So many people had people that were just afraid to come in. We didn't have any of that, so really proud of that. Second thing is we're going to make high quality products throughout the pandemic. We're going to run the plants 24 seven. Third thing is we're going to ship them on time and in full. And we've been at, you know, 98.5 or better throughout the pandemic. So there's been no shortage of Chobani and there's been a shortage of a lot of stuff. So I, I really applaud our plant employees and I really applaud our distribution and logistics folks. And then our sourcing folks, because we sourced our lids, foils, sleeves, cultures, everything, fruit, milk. And then the fourth piece was we're going to help our retail partners 
pack out product because they had labor shortages and there were very high velocities because people were, you know, in stores more, buying more, at home more. And so we have a retail execution team dedicated, not farmed out um, or subcontracted out. And it's about 125 growing toward 150 dedicated Trevani employees that go in stores every day and just pack out shelves so that our in-stocks are higher and more people can enjoy our products. And our retail partners, by the way, north, south, east, west, big, small, all really appreciated this because they really needed the help. And then the fifth and final was that we're going to try to do some good in the world. And so we sent a truck a day to food banks and uh, 100,000 cups in each truck, seven and a half million cups of yogurt, fresh product, not coated product. So in the middle of a pandemic, I asked everyone to make more product and ship it to food banks. And um, proud of that. Very, very proud of that. And then we joined Nourish New York and we joined um, a similar program in Idaho where the government was trying to increase dairy. We partnered with them to help the food banks in those respective states and also make additional product led by the two governors in each state, very powerful programs to put more food on people's plates and tables. Using dairy was a big component of it, cheese and yogurt and milk to deliver nutrition when and where people needed it most. And then turned our cafe into a food bank and gave away meals and products. And so I'm proud of how we've handled ourselves. And I think, you know, people will judge us based on our actions more than our words. And uh, we feel pretty good about how we've acted and behaved and the deeds we've done throughout this. So we started on this 15 minimum wage about 10 or 11 months ago. It was actually this time last year. So it was something we were going to do pre-pandemic. Now, obviously, the pandemic does, you know, make you focus more on your employees, but it was an idea and a work stream we had long in advance of the pandemic. And either way, I'm happy to announce it now. It'll kick in in Q1. It applies, you know, 70% of our workforce are hourlies. So it's a big deal. This is the starting salary to 15, which brings our average hourly to 19, which is well over two times the federal minimum. And I'm proud we did it. I'm proud we did it. We didn't wait for the government to adjust the federal minimum wage. We, you know, you can be out ahead of the government. And uh, we just did the right thing as a business. And I hope we inspire other businesses to do the same, particularly food manufacturers. Because let's face it, food manufacturers are probably, relatively speaking, are doing the best. So many people are at home and in-home consumption is on the rise. So they could do it. You know, there's really no excuse So I hope we inspire others to do the same because it's the right thing to do to take care of your employees, particularly hourlies, which are your frontline heroes, particularly in a pandemic. And it'll strengthen community. And it's a business investment, not an expense. Because at the end of the day, you're going to have happier, healthier employees that'll be more productive and you'll have less attrition. So, you know, the cynics would say, oh, it's a big expense and I can't do that. And I have shareholders to men. It's like you're looking at it all wrong and add it upside down and backwards. Yeah, I would agree 100%. It's, it always strikes me as really odd when companies announce that they've had a massive reduction in profits and they only made $40 billion or whatever it was compared to $200 billion. And you think, well, the th- kind of things that you're doing, and maybe I'm just being naive or utopian, 
they can afford to do that kind of thing and okay maybe the shareholders don't get quite as much but surely you look after the people and give them that security that they need yeah for sure and i think that comes back to you as an employer i think it's very short-sighted to view it as an expense of course it's an expense you're paying people more money but as a result they're happier and healthier and the communities are stronger and they're more productive and they're more loyal. So your productivity goes up, your uh, attrition goes down, and in the end, it's an investment that pays dividends. But we did it just because it was the right thing to do because they are our frontline workers and we're a food manufacturer. Our plants are our cathedrals, we call them, right? And they're operating 24-7 to put food on America's table. So... Without our plant workers, we don't we don't have a company, we don't have a business, we don't have a brand. And I think there's the health side of things as well because we hear so much about we're learning more and more about how stress causes health issues, which causes other issues, and that creates financial issues. So, by removing some stress from people's lives and giving them security and more money, then you improve their health, which has got to be a good thing. Definitely. Definitely. So it is all connected in the end. We recently built a firehouse in New Berlin and a community center. And, uh, you know, some folks are like, hey, what? You're not in the firehouse building business. Of course we're not. But they couldn't get it done publicly. And so private sector joins public sector for the advancement and betterment of the community. And I think it's a beautiful model. Public can't do it all alone. NGOs can't do it all alone. Private companies can't do it all alone. But man, in partnership, you can get some stuff done. You can really move the needle. And New Berlin is where it all started for us. That is our local firehouse. That is where all the first-time responders come from. And it's all volunteer. They had a couple of bays that couldn't fit the fire trucks. This will be a four- to five-bay modern firehouse that is expandable as that community expands and and the population increases that can fit the new trucks we're building a state-of-the-art kitchen so that they can eat healthy food and be comfortable all volunteer and then we're building a community a chobani community center attached to it where on the other side of this pandemic people can come all walks of life race ethnicity socioeconomic and gather and share times together and share stories and have some fun. Look, I think obligation is the wrong word, but th- these are the things you should take care of the communities in which you operate. It's a little adjacent to the employee point that we've been talking about, but it's connected as well. You should do your part. I'm not trying to project Chobani on other companies. Everyone has their own playbook. Everyone has their own vision, mission some private, some public, some big, small. So I'm not trying to say, do it the Jabani way. I'm trying to say, do it your own way, but do something. (laughs) Well, and there's not just the the COVID and the extra money that people are getting. I mean, you've you've done the um the child care stuff and you've done parental leave and and uh, a, a lot of different things that all form a part of that bigger picture. Yeah, we did. I didn't even talk about that, but you know, back in March, we, we, yeah, we did the childcare subsidy because people were home, kids were home and 
how do you go to work when your kids are home and you don't have childcare and they're not at school? And we extended it. So it's still going on today because a lot of people are hybrid. And that's just the right thing to do. And again, to your point, if your employees are less stressed, they're healthier and more productive. And then we've been doing special bonuses every quarter for the plant workers because they're coming in every day in a pandemic and the plants are running 24-7. That's all in addition to the 15. And so, you know, we don't need to go rattle all this stuff off. But I guess the larger point is this is baked into the fabric of the company. And it really started from day one, cup one, because it's it was Hamdi's vision all along to give back to your employees and communities and society. And that is as alive today as it was 12 years ago. Definitely a good news story there. And now to something else that could turn out to be a good news story, and that's a new system to tackle food waste being developed by researchers at the University of Cagliari in Italy. It's a scanning system that can tell you whether a sell-by date is accurate or if the sell-by date can be extended as the food can be safely eaten for longer. To tell us more and how it works is the lead scientist from the project, Professor Carlo Carbonaro. If you could first start by telling me what the issues are with use-by dates and how that leads to so much food waste, because even across Europe there seem to be great differences between use-by and best-by and sell-by. There's so much confusion, I think, maybe. That depends on the regulation of the market, but all of these indications, they are, they are static indications. They don't tell you any information about the real status of the food, because they are just calculated according to the temperature condition that should be kept for the proper conservation of the food. But if the food is not stored in the proper way, these static indications cannot say anything to you. And we all experienced some food that was not formally expired, but could not be consumed because of the presence of mold or because of the presence of an unpleasant smell. On the other hand, there are some food that could be safely consumed even after the use by date indication. But usually we do not have any way to know that. So probably for safe, uh, for our safety, we just put it in the trash because we don't have any, any other indication on the conservation status of the food. And are there any ways now that you can tell, or is it the only way that you can do it right now is to just smell it and taste it? Not, not really. Even if they are not so diffuse on the market, there are some indicators. They are called critical temperature indicators or time temperature indicators. They give you some information on the conservation status of the food. But the best they can do is tell you if the food is safe with respect to the shelf life indicated on the static indication, on the best before indication. But they cannot determine a new expiration date because they are quite limited in their capability to measure the real status of the food. And so how did you devise your method to address this issue? Well, we were working on another subject, indeed. We were working on radiographic digital imaging, 
and we were in the lab and we discovered that our materials uh, we were working on uh, could be also useful to monitor time and temperature because we store some energy in those materials, for example, by UV excitation, by UV radiation or X-ray radiation. And this energy is released slowly by the materials during time and depending on the temperature. I mean that the higher temperature, the faster the release. So we imagine to use these mater materials also to monitor the conservation status of a, a, an item that should be kept at proper temperature for a certain time. The method itself, how does that work? Is that photonics? Yeah, it, it, it's photonics indeed. Uh, as I said before, we, we can store by irradiation some energy in the material and this energy is released during time depending on the temperature. And we know the physical law governing the energy release. So we know exactly the energy level that should we uh, have after certain period of time at definite temperature. But uh, we can also probe the material and read the amount of uh, residual energy and we can do it by photonic, I mean by optical stimulation and recording the signal emitted from our materials with a camera. So we can compare the expected value with the recorded one and we can decide if this is correct or not. So we can say that if they are the same, it means that uh, the material, the, the food in our case, did not undergo any thermal abuse. But if they are different, it means that we had a thermal abuse. And we can estimate the average temperature corresponding to the recorded energy value so that we can use this uh, label as proper time indicator that are able to estimate a new expiration date. And is this something that you can use to get a sequence of readings or is it only just one time that it can be used? Each label can be read just one time. More than one label to track uh, all the distribution chain of a food. I mean that we want to track all the journey from the producer to the consumer. We want to validate each step of the distribution chain. We can do it by a certain number of labels, reading one label for each step. And how big would the labels have to be? How big? Oh, they are just uh, one centimeter square. They are made of powders which are deposited like a, a, a sort of film and they are closed in between two plastic uh, layers so they can be attached to the external part of the packaging of the food. So they are not in contact with the food. There is no concern about toxicity or any danger for people which are going to consume the food. And would you only need one series of stickers per batch of food or would it be on every single item? Yeah, that depends on how the market wants to exploit this label. Because in principle, we can attach a label on each item on within the box. So we can track the whole batch or each box or even 
each item within the box. And it, would that be something that would be cost-effective to do? And who would do that? Would would the consumer have a scanner, or would it be supermarkets? Okay. At, at the moment, we are developing a portable scanner, which is a prototype at the moment, because we have realized everything in the laboratory, and we arrived to act fast just because we need uh, a way to... Um, develop our prototype to go outside the laboratory and uh, if this scanner let's call it uh, a scanner uh, is uh, managed by a dealer it means that the dealer is the one which is able to say to you if the food is safe and which is the new expiration date but in our idea the perspective application that we wish and we are working to is that each consumer could read the new expiration date possibly by using a specific app with a smartphone. And how, how does the ActFast for our help with the research or how is ActFast yeah. involved? Yeah, yeah, uh, you know that ActFast is a, a platform which is granted by European Commission and this platform helps the researchers to develop their ideas by using photonics in order to bring the idea from the laboratory to the market. We already work in the photonic field because we are researchers and uh, uh, ACFAST is the platform that uh, offers us the expertise to realize a prototype of a reading device, of the reading device that we need. A sort of, as I said, a portable scanner to probe the, to probe the labels outside the laboratory in a, a market application. What's the time scale for bringing this to market? Is that would, would you have to partner with a commercial company, or how, how will that work? Uh, well, the idea is to arrive to the market in 24, 36 months. Depending on, of course, the availability of funds, we are presently starting a spin-off and we are looking for investors and business partners to develop the whole project. It certainly sounds like it's something that's of major importance when it comes to things like tackling food waste. Yes, because, uh, you know, to, just to produce food, uh, there is a lot of investments in, term of, in terms of energy, in terms of water, in terms of uh, consumption of our resources. So reducing the waste uh, would help the whole heart uh, to save our resources, uh, to have a, a better future, of course. And now it's to some more cutting-edge news, and that is about The Protein Brewery, a company producing protein-rich animal-free food ingredients, because it just received a 22 million euro investment led by Novo Growth, the growth equity arm of Novo Holdings. Rather than talk to The Protein Brewery, we spoke with Thomas Grotkier, principal at Novo Holdings, about the funding and their approach to investing in companies introducing new technologies and products into the marketplace. I wonder if we could start, if you give me a little bit of background and information on Novo Holdings and Novo Growth. Yes, absolutely. So Novo Holdings is a holding company of the Novo Group and manage the wealth of a foundation called the Novo Nordisk Foundation. 
And just to give you a little bit of background, the Nova Group consists of primarily two big companies, one called Nova Nordisk, a pharmaceutical company, and a company called Novozymes, which is into industrial biotech. And what we do in Nova Holdings is that we invest into life science companies at all stages of development and in a broad portfolio of equity, actually. I am working out of the Copenhagen office headquarters, but we also have offices in San Francisco and Boston in the United States, as well as Singapore. That's a new office. And we have people working out of London as well. So smaller office there. And we have the size of, you know, if you're from UK, you probably say welcome trust. If you're American, more like Bill and Melissa Gates Foundation, just so in terms of, of size. But what is a bit different from what we're doing compared to other endowments is that we have active ownership of companies. So this is where Nova Growth gets into the picture. It's one of the investment teams in Nova Holdings. And in that group, we invest into different areas from medical devices to industrial biotech. And today, we're talking about a company, industrial biotech, the protein brewery, and also uh, chromologics. There's a little difference in the sense that chromologics is done out of a sort of, we have a seed investment pocket, but for all practical reasons, it doesn't make any big difference. It's just uh, two different bank accounts, but from the same same company. So plenty of background in the dairy space then. This is actually um, our heritage. We also own a large fraction of the company called Christian Hansen in the ingredient space. So we are well represented in large companies in industrial biotech. That includes a lot of dairy products and ingredients for the dairy industry. And what is a new thing to Nova Holdings is our investment activities in earlier stage companies. So until maybe like five years ago, all of the activities was into mature companies and all early stage activities were focused on drug development. And then it was decided to pay more attention to industrial biotech. And that's when I started working here almost four years ago. And my job has been to build up a portfolio of industrial biotech companies. Are you seeing a big increase in companies in this kind of area, biotechnology and cutting edge science related to the food industry? I would say so. We are seeing a growing number of inbound requests about investment opportunities in this area. I don't know whether it's just the the last year we've seen a growing number of companies, but at least over a five-year period, it's definitely uh, seen a lot of growth, both in the US, but also in Europe. When it comes to looking at companies, how do you decide whether you're going to get involved or not? (laughs) Yes, you know, that's a good question. We assess companies in the typical way venture investors assess the companies, and I call it the ATs for assessment. We look at the smaller companies in the way we assess the team, the, the background experience and drive of the team members, the founding team. If it's a bigger company, of course, it's maybe a little bit more focused on on management. We look at the market opportunity. In general, it's a risky investment, so we need to see a big market to address. We would like to see the company has evolved. It has sort of commercial traction. They do deals. They sell products. Something that indicates customers are interested and it's not an academic discipline or they are off track. In Nova Holdings, we are science-driven. So we pay a lot of attention to the science. So we look a lot at the fundamental biotech. We look at the IP. 
we look at the technology in the way that we would like to understand whether it's scalable. It's nice to have technology for proof of concept, but we also evaluate whether that can be taken to the market. And the, in, in the dairy world, we need to serve very big volumes of products. We also assess whether the technology and the idea is transformative, it makes a, a huge difference to many people. If it's more like more of the same, we would probably not invest. We also look into timing of technologies. And I, actually, I think this plays into your first question about the increasing number of companies we see in the space. We actually see that end consumers, at least the trends, point toward an interest of buying new products. There's more interest in vegan products. There's more interest in sustainability. And we actually believe end consumers are ready to purchase these goods at the end. It's very important. <laughs> and of course, like any other investors, we need to see a return of our money. And we would like to see a company where we also at a certain stage where we have the opportunity to sort of exit the company, sell the shares and go on to a new thing. So that's a sort of the concept of what you look at. I would say we pay additional attention to the technology and the team, maybe compared to companies with more in a sort of business-driven industries. You mentioned sustainability and how important that is to consumers now. Things like sustainability and helping the planet and meeting climate goals. Would, yes. Would you consider those to be important parameters? Obviously, you have to make money, but are those things that are important as well as making money? So both parameters are important. I would say if we look at two opportunities and they both have a positive impact and one is a better commercial opportunity, we go for the return. We, we are return driven. That's what we would like to see. But I would say the sustainability angle is a very important screening parameter. If we don't see a positive impact somehow, then we probably wouldn't do the investment either. But I would say we are not a company where sort of we sort of directly rank the sustainability. If we think the company is fundamentally good, it adds to the sustainability agenda and it's good financial return, we would invest. We don't need to see a sort of a threshold for companies in that sense. And the reason for not having a threshold is that we believe it's it's good to build awareness and if we can have a positive impact, then we should not uh, stay away from incremental benefits in that sense. Is this a situation where companies would come to you for funding or do you actively go and look for the companies? We do both. I would say we have been on a journey. We started five years ago with venture activities in Nova Holdings. And before that, we were only recognized as a life investor in classical drug discovery biotech. So people didn't associate Nova Holdings with venture activities and industrial biotechnology. So initially, we did spend quite some time on cold calls, going to conferences and visiting uh, universities to tell them about our intentions in the space. Over the last couple of years, we have seen more and more inbound interest, and we don't need to go out to the same extent. But I, I always believe it's a good idea to go out, to be proactive, to force yourself into uh, new situations, be an entrepreneur on, on getting deal flow. What did you find attractive about the protein brewery? And can you tell me a bit more about the company? Yes, absolutely. 
we have been looking into the protein alternative protein space for a while. We believe it has potential to be an industry that can grow a lot, meat replacement, healthy ingredients, so forth, and also offering customers an alternative simply to choose between meat and a more vegan diet or flexitarian diet. And what we saw in the protein brewery was a company that actually combined the nutritional aspect with a very uh, new idea to produce a protein. So there were two sides of the coin. There was a nutritional profile of the product, but also a very clever way to produce proteins. And what we need to see from new protein sources is exactly both something that is attractive in terms of cost, but also that has nice nutritional profile, mimicking meat, has a taste that is in line with, with meat, and you have to be able to produce at a cost that is attractive, both for end consumers, but also the entire value chain. So that was what triggered our interest. On top of that, as I mentioned earlier, a strong driven team located in Netherlands, which has a strong tradition of nutrition and food science. And the investment in Chromologics, was that similar or different? The track was a bit different. That was a company we incubated at Nova Holdings in collaboration with our foundation. So our foundation gave the company some grants to mature the concept, and we followed the company as investors. And at a certain stage, we believed the company was ready for a seed investment because we liked the commercial outlook. And I think it's very well spotted, Jim, that you connected the dots because Chromologics is a company that's producing natural colors. They're also sustainable and it's a vegan alternative. And if you look at what is offered today, there are a lot of very nice natural colors for food applications out there. But for instance, carmine, which is one of the big food colorant, is derived from insects. So it doesn't have the vegan profile. And what we discovered was we believe that Chromologics has the ability to produce a similar food colorant with some nice characteristics. It's stable with respect to temperature and pH. And we also believe that a fermentation process offers the opportunities to reduce cost, which will be beneficial to everybody in that value chain. We like to think about themes in investment, because if there's sort of a general trend, you are better equipped to do your due diligence, you learn more, and you have the capability to find investors that can help you. And I would like to mention for the protein brewery, we teamed up with two other major investors in this round, together also with the local investors who also definitely support the company. Roquette, it's a big uh, grain processor of France with deep insight into grain processing, the food area, and Unovis Asset Management, which is a dedicated investment company within the area of uh, alternative protein. So putting things together, I believe we have a nice syndicate to support the company in the future. What does the investment in these companies mean they're able to do? Yes. So the money is one thing. You know, capital is always good. And uh, at the end of the day, you always measure it on, on how much capital you bring to the company. But we are all active investors in the sense we believe we bring more than money. And to give you a, a, a few examples here, when we invest in the protein brewery, we know they have to scale their fermentation process. They have to do certain things. We can give the company access to the Nova Group, 
to other portfolio companies. So this sort of can accelerate development. Similarly, you know, this asset management, they know a lot of companies out there who are marketing food products. This means they can get access to customers in a very fast way. They can test the product and they can modify based on the feedback. And Roquette is a very savvy grain processor and also marketing product in the space as a B2B investor. So we deliver both capital, but also knowledge that we hope will benefit the company tremendously in the years to come. My final comment would be, I think we will uh, see more here in the space. I think there's room for for more innovation here. So in in your podcast, I think it's worth keeping uh, ears and eyes open for for new technologies here, because I think it's, it's very interesting that you cover these aspects. And now it's over to Dublin to see what's happening in the dairy markets. And this week, it's with StoneX's Liam Fenton. Dairy futures market uh, continued to trade along this week, uh, albeit relatively quiet in comparison to world events where we got over the US election and uh, we seem to have found a vaccine for uh, Corona. Butter was uh, down slightly uh, between 30 and 60 euros a tonne. Uh, across the board. Quarter four ended up trading around 32.80, which was down around 60, 70 uh, euros on the week. Uh, Quarter one, 2021, um, was trading around the 32.40 level, uh, which was down around 30 euros on the week from uh, um, 32.60-65 level. Quarter two was trading at around the 3300 level, which was down around uh, 25 euros on the week. Quarter three continued to trade flat around the 34.40 level. Skimmel powder um, was very tame price movement wise. Uh, most of the move was really in quarter four where we were down around 25 euros on the week to uh, 21.35 level. Quarter one was um, more or less flat, still around the 21.70 level. Flat as well for quarter two at around 21.90 level. And uh, quarter three, 2021, was trading around the 22.20 level. Uh, way was relatively unchanged. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another Dairy Dialogue podcast. As I mentioned, a little shorter than usual, but still lots of interesting content. And I hope you will join us again next time when I try and find something interesting to say about the number 109. Or something else entirely, but almost certainly not about travel. Other than for groceries, which isn't particularly interesting. Especially seeing as now you can pretty much do all your shopping online, which is a bit dangerous with so many stores at your fingertips. You can buy from anywhere as well. I actually found a magazine that I like from the US that I used to subscribe to, but didn't think it would be worth getting anymore. But, to my surprise, I discovered it's actually cheaper to subscribe to and have it mailed from the US than it is to subscribe to a similar one here in the UK. And when you consider all the new music that's being released by bands eager to bring in some money because they can't tour, it's all getting a little expensive. And the holiday season's just around the corner too, and Black Friday. 
So on that note, I'll sign off and start on next week's podcast and tomorrow's news. Actually, that makes it sound a little bit like I can see the future. What I meant was writing about the news for tomorrow's newsletter. So until next time, take care, stay safe, have a great week, and as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>